Well, I had a recurring nightmare in college, I guess you say university in Australia. Uh, even after university, I sometimes would have these recurring nightmares. And in, my, in one of those dreams, I would wake up to realize that it's the final exam day. And I panic because I haven't studied for it and I'm not ready for it. And I even woke up late. So I'm frantically getting dressed, running out the door, running to the class as fast as I, I can in my dream. But have you ever tried to run in your dream? You really can't run fast in your dream for some reason. Then I wake up to find out that it was a dream, a sigh of relief. Maybe you've had similar anxiety-filled dreams like that. Now, this actually never happened in real life, though. As a student, I learned to prepare for the exam. Uh, I learned how to organize my schedule so I would be ready for it. And I ordered my life in light of what was coming. Now, in this passage, in today's passage, Jesus is preparing the disciples for what is coming. Jesus wants his followers to know what is coming so that they can live in light of that reality, in light of what's coming. He's, he's talking about the end. Now, we live so much of our lives in the moment and don't really think about what's at the end. With endless number of distractions literally right in front of our faces from smartphones and TV screens and computer screens, mind-numbing, temporarily es escape from reality that these things offer, we hardly take time to contemplate on what is coming up ahead. So it is a gift from God to us this morning to take a moment to consider God's word to us and think about what Jesus is teaching in this passage so that we can live our lives now in light of what Jesus says, in light of what Jesus said is coming. Now, what Jesus is talking about in this chapter can be a bit confusing, and it, it was a difficult passage, and uh, um, I wonder what, why Mark assigned me this passage uh, and didn't preach it himself. But... Uh, it can be a bit confusing because the events that Jesus is describing sound like they could happen one after another in the same time period. So to the original readers or hearers, these events must have seemed like uh, the future events that would happen around the same, t same time, one after another. Now, let's see if, if this analogy will help us uh, get our bearings. When you see a mountain range... Uh, from far away, those mountains appear to be in the same place from far away. But when you actually get closer, you realize that the mountains in, in the front and, and in the back, they're quite far apart. Now, in a similar way, Jesus is describing two major events, two mountains, if you will. And from our perspective, living in the 20, 21st century, these two events, they are centuries apart. These events were future events for those who first heard about them, but 20 centuries later, we find ourselves in between the two events that Jesus describes in this chapter. 
One has already happened from my perspective in the past, and the other event has not happened. So we're going to look at these two events and draw some application at the end. So uh, three simple, simple points. What has already happened and what is yet to happen and how should we live in light of these realities? So those are the uh, three things that we're going to look at today. So what's already happened? Uh, in verses 20 through 24, Jesus is prophesying something that is still about 40 years in the future for his uh, disciples, his original uh, listeners. And for us, an event that has already happened in history already. So what is this event? Uh, it's God's judgment against Jerusalem. Um, Jesus is prophesying here about the time when Jerusalem was invaded by the armies of the Roman Empire in 70 AD, and the temple was destroyed then. Now, if you have been going through Luke, as I understand, as a church, uh, remember Jesus is coming toward the end of his earthly ministry. He's going to the cross soon, and he's leaving the temple for the last time. And this is one of the last conversations that he's having with his followers. Now, this conversation started, this topic started when some of his disciples were admiring how beautiful and impressive the temple was. Look at these beautiful stones, Jesus. And, and the temple in Jerusalem was considered one of the great wonders of the world. It was impressive. And from a distance, it was said that it looked like a mountain of gold. So the breathtaking beauty and the majestic structure, all these things made the Jews swell with a sense of pride. And it was, it was meant to be a symbol of God's presence with Israel. They were proud about that. And, and so Jesus astonished his listeners when he predicted that this temple was to be destroyed. Jesus told them every stone that they see will be thrown down one day. So the disciples naturally asked Jesus, when will that happen? And what are the signs that these things are about to take place? So the whole conversation, this whole discourse that Jesus uh, gave in this chapter is his response to that question. When will that happen? And what are the signs? And, and did they get more than what they asked for? So in between uh, verses 8 through 19, uh, there's a lot going on in this chapter. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have time to uh, focus on everything, but uh, if I have to summarize, in between verses 8 through 19, Jesus warns his disciples not to be deceived by false messiahs, tells them that there will be wars, earthquakes, famines, plagues, and on top of all that, he tells them that they, they will be hated by all people for the sake of his name and even by their own family members. And people will persecute them and even kill some of them. Now that's a lot. Well, thank you, Jesus. That's not the answer, what we, answer that we were looking for, I'm sure they were thinking. But they don't need to, Jesus says, they don't need to worry about what to say because Jesus himself will give them words to speak and not a hair on their head will perish. Jesus tells them that they must be ready to endure suffering to the end. So with that, with all of that as a background, as a, as a preamble, Jesus now tells them what will actually happen to Jerusalem 
in verses 20 through 24. Uh, let's look at it again. He says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out of the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nation, all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. He says that the armies will surround Jerusalem and they're, they're, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. It says in verse 22. Now God had patiently warned Israel throughout the Old Testament that they will be judged for their unfaithfulness to, the, unfaithfulness to the Lord if they refuse to turn back to Him. Over and over and over again, God sent the prophets to warn them of the future judgment if they remained unrepentant, unfaithful to the Lord. And Jesus says that God is going to fulfill all that was written, all that was prophesied, and bring His judgment and wrath against Israel. He's, that's what he's prophesying here. And these days of vengeance did come in 70 AD when the armies of Rome conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Now, this is not in the Bible, but uh, a man named Josephus, uh, he was a Jewish historian. Uh, he was a person who witnessed this entire process of the Roman occupation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. He saw it from the beginning to the end. And according to his record, when Jerusalem was besieged by the Roman army for a long time, people, people started doing all kinds of horrible things. People started killing and eating their own babies and because they were, they were so starving. They killed each other and, and fought each other for a piece of bread. It is said that the number of Jews killed by their own uh, fighting for food was more than the number of Jews killed by the Roman army. And that's horrific. And Jesus prophesied this horrific event. And it is true that what he prophesied actually happened in history. Yeah, we have a record of that. But then we need to ask ourselves, so what? Okay. What, is, what does an event that happened 2,000 years ago have, have anything to do with us living today? It, it's already happened in the past, so we, we're safe from these things, right? Well, as is often the case with the prophecies in the Bible, God's judgment against Jerusalem is a type or a pattern of God's future judgment against the world, uh, which is still to come. And that's what Jesus speaks about next. So in uh, verses 25 through 28, um, Jesus is going to speak about what is yet to happen. So we already look at that, looked at uh, what has already happened. And so what is yet to happen? Verse 20, 25, one more time. 
and there will be signs in sun and moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory now when these things begin to take place straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near now here Jesus describes the day he will return to bring God's final judgment to the world verse 25 starts uh, he, he starts by saying and there will be and Jesus doesn't mention any specific time gap between verse 24 and verse 25 remember the two mountains uh, from our perspective, the first mountain is already in the past, in 70 AD. It, it's already happened. But the second mountain is still in our future. We're still waiting for that day when Jesus will return. Now, to our non-Christian friends, uh, especially in, in Japan when there's so few Christians, to our non-Christian friends, us Christians might look and sound absurd because we believe that a person who died 2,000 years ago rose from the dead and is still alive and we are waiting for that person to come back again. That, that sounds crazy to them, I'm sure. But in the New Testament, the second coming of Jesus is mentioned 318 times. That's once every 13 verses or so in the New Testament. It, 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 it's mentioned frequently and over and over again about the second coming of Jesus. So for us Christians, the second coming of Jesus is an indispensable teaching. It, it's a truth that should bring us hope and affect everything in our lives right now. It is impossible to truly walk as a Christian if we do not remember and think about the fact that Jesus will return one day. So so we're going to we're going to look at what will actually happen when Jesus returns. Now look at verse 25, 25 one more time and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And it also says at the end of uh, verse 20, 26 the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, in the parallel passage in uh, the Gospel of Mark, it says the sun, it says similar things, but it says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, when you hear these words, it sounds literally like one of those end-of-the-world movies, doesn't it? The Stars will be falling from the sky and the earth will be destroyed and everybody's going to die. Now, will the stars literally fall from the sky and destroy the earth? Is that what Jesus is saying here? It's, there's well, One way to interpret what Jesus is saying here is to literally understand it literally. For the sun to actually be darkened and moon to 
stop shining and the stars to fall from the sky and so forth. That's one way to interpret that. Uh, but perhaps there is another way to think about this or interpret this, understand this. Jesus may be using here a figurative language here to describe what will happen when he returns. Now, the reason why I tend to think that is the case is because when you read through the Old Testament, the Old Testament uses the same exact figurative language to describe God bringing judgment against the nations that oppose Him and those who have wronged His people. For example, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 10, uh, in pronouncing His judgment against Babylon, God says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give, give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Do you, do you hear the echo of what, uh, what Jesus was saying? Another passage, Ezekiel chapter, Ezekiel chapter uh, 32, verse 7, in pronouncing judgment against Pharaoh of Egypt, he, uh, God says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. So, no more light. The stars, sun, moon, no light. So that's a language of God's wrath and judgment against God's enemies in the, in the Old Testament. And people who heard Jesus' words knew their Old Testament well. And so they would have immediately understood what Jesus was referring to. They understood. They, they, they recognized that he was talking about the day of the Lord, when, the day when God will judge all who oppose him and right every wrong and bring his wrath against all evil. And Jesus says in verse 27, one more time, and, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now this title, Son of Man, is Jesus' preferred title that he used to refer to himself. And, and this language of the Son of Man coming in a cloud is straight out of Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14, where there's a prophecy about this God's chosen king, God's chosen uh, anointed one with everlasting dominion over all things who will reign forever. And Jesus says, that's me. And he says, he will come in a cloud. Now remember in the Bible, clouds especially represented God's, God's presence and it represented the glory and presence of God. Remember when Moses met God on Mount Sinai, he was surrounded by clouds, surrounded by God's glory. When, when Solomon built the temple and, and he dedicated to, to God, uh, the temple was filled with clouds. So the clouds was a, a symbol of God's glory and God's presence. And so, oh, excuse me. Sorry about that. Jesus says, when I come, 
God's presence and glory will be seen in more power and more glory than you've seen at this temple. He's Remember, he's speaking in the temple or, or just outside the temple. The day will surely come when I will return as king to judge the world. That day will surely come when I will completely restore and redeem all this, all of this broken world. That's what Jesus has prophesied to his disciples. So, so here we have, we have two events, two expressions of God's judgment that Jesus prophesied to his disciples. Two mountains, two expressions of God's judgment. But so what? What difference does this make to our life now? So let's, let's look at the last point. How should we live in light of these realities? Um, if you drive around in America, uh, you might uh, come across uh, what's called bumper stickers. Maybe you have those in Australia, or maybe you don't. Um, in Japan, we don't we don't see any of those. But uh, uh, they they put stickers on their car bumpers, and it may be a name of a politician that they they support, or or some kind of message that these people want to communicate to those driving by. I don't know why they do that. Uh, it looks so tacky, and um, I think it damages your car, so why do it? But uh, they do it nonetheless, and one of them that I've seen says, uh, goes something like this. Jesus is coming soon. Look busy. Now, is that the response that we should have to the fact that Jesus is coming back? Do I just need to look busy? Well, I think Jesus' message to his disciples, uh, a couple of things from, from this passage that we can take away. How, how should we live in light of these realities? First, I think the implicit message for the disciples and for us is don't be like the unfaithful Israel. Now, Israel, living in between God's promise and the reality of their situation, Rather than trusting the Lord and being faithful to, to, to the Lord, the people of Israel turned to the world and turned inward to themselves and turned turn to other gods or things for their hope and comfort and for their hard-hearted rejection of God. A disaster was coming upon, uh, upon them, and it did. Jesus warned them about that. Jesus says to the disciples in verse 34, He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He's saying, don't let your heart be weighed down by endless spending of your attention and money and energy and resources that will not ultimately bring you hope and comfort. Don't let the cares of this world distract you from being faithful to the Lord, Jesus says. Don't be like the unfaithful Israel and end up like them. That's the implicit message uh, that Jesus is saying by warning them uh, about, about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you this. What are the things that distract you from the Lord, from being faithful to the Lord? What are the things that you often turn uh, often turn to for your hope and comfort? 
if there's anything or anyone that excites us more than being with Jesus and, and with his people, maybe we need to watch ourselves, uh, lest our hearts be weighed down by these things. Now, if I am honest, I think for me, uh, one of the most, uh, well, I think smartphone has one of the biggest sources of distraction for me. As helpful as this tool can be, it can also be something that sucks up my attention and time and, and causes me to be uh, spiritually asleep to this eternal realities of who God is and, and who He calls us to be in, in this world. Um, instead, Jesus calls us to be spiritually awake. Uh, verse 36, He says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He says, stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Don't be spiritually sleepy. Stay awake. Be alert spiritually, he says. But how can we stay awake and be spiritually alert? Jesus says we can stay awake especially by praying. He says, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength. Now, he says, stay alert by praying that we can have strength to escape the future judgment and stand before Christ and hear him say, well done. He says, stay awake. But how can we, how can we confident, confidently pray that kind of prayer that we would be able to escape God's judgment and stand before Jesus. How can we do that? We have looked at the two expressions of God's judgment in this passage, but there's another expression of God's judgment. Earlier, we learned that withholding of light is a language of God's wrath, and judgment. And that's precisely what happened at the crucifixion of Jesus. It says in Luke chapter 23, verse 44, there was darkness over the whole land while the sun's light failed. The cross was God's judgment, but God's judgment against our sins. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was darkness over the whole land. He was receiving God's wrath and judgment against us who rejected God and lived as though he didn't exist. He, Jesus did that for us so that we would never be forsaken by God and always have his love and so that we would never have to receive God's judgment against our sins the only reason why we can pray with confidence to escape the future judgment of God and, and stand before the Son of Man, stand before Jesus, is that Jesus stood in our place on that cross, giving His life in exchange for ours so that one day we can stand before God and hear Him say, Welcome home. Jesus gave his life to make that possible for us. And when we see that, when we see through the eyes of faith 
by the power of the Spirit, when our hearts, uh, the eyes of our hearts see the beauty of this great love that Jesus has shown us, and when our hearts are moved and transformed by the glories of who Jesus is, that's when we can stay awake. That's when we can say, there's nothing better in this world than Jesus. The only thing that is powerful enough to awaken us from being drowsy by the pseudo-comforts of this world is the love of God in Christ Jesus that He has shown us. And when we stay awake spiritually, we will long for Christ's return with hope as we wait for Him. When we truly believe that Jesus will surely return to earth one day to restore all that is broken, to right all injustice and evil, and to make this world, make the world sin, sinless and suffering-free and perfect. When we truly believe that, we can endure whatever hardships we experience in this life with hope. Now, my second child, uh, Kaya, uh, she's a girl, uh, she's 15 now, but she was born with Down syndrome. And when she was about four months old, uh, she underwent uh, several major surgeries and was hospitalized for more than two months. And I remember looking at her very tiny body covered with scars and, and all kinds of tubes. Now, I felt a tremendous sense of sadness and grief as I thought about the fact that this child would have to live with her disability for the rest of her life. And I remember feeling so sad and sorrowful uh, looking at, you know, all the scars that she had. Now, what I clung to, what Emma and I, my wife and I clung to at, at such a moment was this hope that Jesus will eventually return. Whatever suffering and sorrow we have experienced in our, in our earthly lives, our story, story does not end there. When Jesus returns, all our suffering and sorrow will be gone. All our tears will be wiped away and the world will come where there is no sickness, no disability, no death, not a single broken thing, but a world full of love and joy. That's what's coming. And that is the story God has given us in Jesus. When we go through our sorrows in this life, we don't need to drown them by distracting ourselves with whatever comforts that this world offers. We can hear Jesus say, Stay awake. I'm coming back to take you home to be with me. And as we stay awake and await His return with hope in the midst of this world full of brokenness, we get to share this hope. We get to share the hope we have in Jesus to those around us who are seeking so desperately to find hope in many different things, but always coming up empty. We get to be the ones to tell them about Jesus, whose love is what these people ultimately need and are looking for. So let's stay awake together and let's pray, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.